Section 23 of the Journal of Lewis and Clark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Journal of Lewis and Clark by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Chapter 21. Observations made in a voyage commencing at St. Catherine's Landing, on the east bank of the Mississippi, proceeding downwards to the mouth of the Red River, and from thence ascending that river as high as the hot springs, in the proximity of the last-mentioned river, extracted from the journals of William Dunbar, Esquire, and Dr. Hunter. Mr. Dunbar, Dr. Hunter, and the party employed by the United States to make a survey of and explore the country traversed by the Washita River, left St. Catherine's Landing on the Mississippi in latitude 31, 26, 30 north, and longitude 6 hours, 5, 56 west, from the meridian of Greenwich, on Tuesday, the 16th of October, 1840. A little distance below St. Catherine's Creek, and five leagues from Natchez, they passed the white cliffs, composed chiefly of sand, surmounted by pine, and from 100 to 200 feet high. When the waters of the Mississippi are low, the base of the cliff is uncovered, which consists of different colored clays and some beds of ochre, over which there lies, in some places, a thin lamina of iron ore. Small springs, possessing a petrifying quality, flow over the clay and ochre, and numerous logs and pieces of timber, converted into stone, are strewed about the beach. Fine pure argil of various colors, chiefly white and red, is found here. On the 17th they arrived at the mouth of the Red River, the confluence of which, with the Mississippi, agreeably to the observations of Mr. de Ferrer, lies in latitude 31, 1, 15 north, and longitude 6 hours, 7, 11 west of Greenwich. Red River is here about 500 yards wide, and without any sensible current. The banks of the river are clothed with willow, the land low and subject to inundation to the height of thirty feet or more above the level of the water at this time. The mouth of the Red River is accounted to be seventy-five leagues from New Orleans, and three miles higher up than the Chafalaya, or Opelousa River, which was probably a continuation of the Red River when its waters did not unite with those of the Mississippi, but during the inundation. On the 18th, the survey of the Red River was commenced, and on the evening of the 19th, the party arrived at the mouth of the Black River, in latitude 31, 15, 48 north, and about 26 miles from the Mississippi. Red River derives its name from the rich, fat earth or marl, or that color borne down by the floods, the last of which appeared to have been deposited on the high bank of a stratum of upwards of half an inch in thickness. The vegetation on its banks is surprisingly luxuriant, no doubt owing to the deposition of marl during its annual floods. The willows grow to a good size, but other forest trees are much smaller than those seen on the banks of the Mississippi. As you advance up the river, it gradually narrows in latitude 3108 north. It is about 200 yards wide, which width is continued to the mouth of the Black River, where each of them appears 150 yards across. The banks of the river are covered with pea vine, and several sorts of grass bearing seed which geese and ducks eat very greedily. And there are generally seen willows, 
growing on one side, and on the other side a small growth of black oak, pecan, hickory, elm, etc. The current in the Red River is so moderate as scarcely to afford an impediment to its ascent. On sounding the Black River, a little above its mouth, there was found twenty feet of water, with a bottom of black sand. The water of Black River is rather clearer than the Ohio, and of a warm temperature, which it may receive from the water flowing into it from the valley of the Mississippi, particularly by the Catahoula. At noon on the 23rd, by a good meridian observation, they ascertained their latitude to be 30, 36, 29 north, and were then a little below the mouths of the Catahoula, Washita, and Bayou Tenza, the united waters of which form the Black River. The current is very gentle the whole length of the Black River, which in many places does not exceed 80 yards in width. The banks on the lower part of the river present a great luxuriance of vegetation and rank grass, with red and black oak, ash, pecan, hickory, and some elms. The soil is black marl, mixed with a moderate proportion of sand, resembling much the soil on the Mississippi banks. Yet the forest trees are not lofty, like those on the margin of the Great River, but resembling the growth on the Red River. In latitude 31, 22, 46 north, they observed that canes grew on several parts of the right bank, a proof that the land is not deeply overflowed, perhaps from one to three feet. The banks have the appearance of stability, very little willow or other productions of newly formed soil on either side. On advancing up the river, the timber becomes larger, in some places rising to the height of 40 feet. Yet the land is liable to be inundated, not from the waters of this small river, but from the intrusion of its more powerful neighbor, the Mississippi. The lands decline rapidly, as in all alluvial countries, from the margin to the cypress swamps, where more or less water stagnates all year round. On the 21st, they passed a small but elevated island, said to be the only one in the river for more than a hundred leagues ascending. On the left bank, near this island, a small settlement of a couple of acres has been begun by a man and his wife. The banks are not less than forty feet above the present level of the water in the river, and are but rarely overflowed. On both sides they are clothed with rich canebrake, pierced by creeks fit to carry boats during the inundation. They saw many cormorants and the hooping crane. Geese and ducks are not yet abundant, but are said to arrive in myriads, with the rains and winters cold. They shot a fowl of the duck kind, whose foot was partially divided, and the body covered with a bluish or lead-colored plumage. On the morning of the 22nd, they observed green matter floating on the river, supposed to come from the Catahoula and other lakes and bayous of stagnant water, which, when raised a little by rain, flow into the Black River, and also many patches of an aquatic plant resembling small islands, some floating on the surface of the river, and others adhering to or resting on the shore in logs. On examining this plant, it was found to have a hollow jointed stem, with roots of the same form, extremely light, with very narrow willow-shaped leaves projecting from the joint, embracing, however, the whole of the tube, and extending to the next inferior joint or knot.
the extremity of each branch is terminated by a spike of very slender, narrow, seminal leaves, from one to two inches in length, and one-tenth or less in breadth, producing its seed on the underside of the leaf, in a double row almost in contact, the grains alternately placed in perfect regularity. Not being able to find the flower, its class and order could not be determined, although it is not probably new. Towards the upper part of the Black River, the shores abound with mussels and periwinkles. The mussels were of the kind called peel mussels. The men dressed a quantity of them, considering them as agreeable food, but Mr. D. found them tough and unpalatable. On arriving at the mouth of the Catahoula, they landed to procure information from a Frenchman settled there. Having a grant from the Spanish government, he has made a small settlement, and keeps a ferry-boat for carrying over men and horses traveling to and from Natchez, and the settlements on Red River and on the Washita River. The country here is all alluvial. In progress of time, the river shutting up ancient passages and elevating the banks over which their waters pass, no longer communicate with the same facility as formerly. The consequence is that many larger tracts formerly subject to inundation are now entirely exempt from that inconvenience. Such is the situation of a most valuable tract upon which this Frenchman is settled. His house stands on an Indian mount, with several others in view. There is also a species of rampart surrounding this place, and one very elevated mount, a view and description of which is postponed until the return, their present situation not allowing of the requisite delay. The soil is equal to the best Mississippi bottoms. From this place, they proceeded to the mouth of the Washita, in latitude 35, 37, 7 north, and encamped on the evening of the 23rd. This river derives its appellation from the name of an Indian tribe formerly resident on its banks, the remnant of which, it is said, went into the great plains to the westward, and either compose a small tribe themselves, or are incorporated into another nation. The Black River loses its name at the junction of Washita, Catahoula, and Tinza, although our re maps represent it as taking place of the Washita. The Tinza and Catahoula are also named from Indian tribes now extinct. The latter is a creek twelve leagues long, which is also the issue of a lake of the same name, eight leagues in length and about two leagues in breadth. It lies west from the mouth of the Catahoula, and communicates with the Red River during the great annual inundation. At the west or northwest angle of the lake, a creek called Little River enters which preserves a channel with running water at all seasons, meandering along the bed of the lake. But in other parts of its superfaces, during the dry season from July to November, and often later, is completely drained, and becomes covered with the most luxuriant herbage. The bed of the lake then becomes the residence of immense herds of deer, of turkeys, geese, cranes, etc., which feed on the grass and grain. By Utenza, serves only to drain off a part of the waters of the inundation from the lowlands of the Mississippi, which here communicate with the Black River during the season of high water. Between the mouth of the Washita and Vellamont's Prairie on the right, the current of the river is gentle, and the banks favorable for towing. The lands on both sides have the appearance of being above the inundation, the timber generally such as high lands produce being chiefly red, white, and black oaks, interspersed with a variety of other trees. 
The Magnolia grandiflora, that infallible sign of the land not being subject to inundation, is not, however, among them. Along the banks, a stratum of solid clay or marl is observable, apparently of ancient deposition. It lies in oblique positions, making an angle of nearly thirty degrees with the horizon, and generally inclined with the descent of the river, although in a few cases the position was contrary. Timber is seen projecting from under the solid bank, which seems indurated, and unquestionably very ancient, presenting a very different appearance from recently formed soil. The river is about eighty yards wide. A league above the mouth of the Washita, the Bayou Ha-Ha comes in unexpectedly from the right, and is one of the many passages through which the waters of the great inundation penetrate and pervade all the low countries, annihilating, for a time, the currents of the lesser rivers in the neighborhood of the Mississippi. The vegetation is remarkably vigorous along the alluvial banks, which are covered with a thick shrubbery and innumerable plants in full blossom at this late season. Villamont's Prairie is so named in consequence of its being included within a grant under the French government to a gentleman of that name. Many other parts of the Washita are named after their early proprietors. The French people projected and began extensive settlements on this river. But the general massacre planned, and in part executed by the Indians against them, and the consequent destruction of the Natchez tribe by the French, broke up all these undertakings, and they are not recommended under that government. Those prairies are plains or savannas without timber, generally very fertile, and producing an exuberance of strong, thick, and coarse herbage. When a piece of ground has once got into this state in an Indian country, it can have no opportunity of reproducing timber, it being an invariable practice to set fire to dry grass in the fall or winter, to attain the advantage of attacking game when the young tender grass begins to spring. This destroys the young timber, and the prairie annually gains upon the woodland. It is probable that the immense plains known to exist in America may owe their origin to this custom. The plains of the Washita lies chiefly on the east side, and being generally formed like the Mississippi land, sloping from the bank of the river to the Great River, they are more or less subject to the inundation in the rear, and in certain floods the water has advanced so far as to be ready to pour over the margin into the Washita. This has now become a very rare thing, and it may be estimated that from a quarter of a mile to a mile in depth will remain free from inundation during high floods. This is pretty much the case with those lands nearly as high as the post of the Washita, with the exception of certain ridges of primitive high land, the rest being evidently alluvial, although now not subject to being inundated by the Washita River. In consequence of its great depth, which the bed of the river has acquired by abrasion. On approaching towards the Bayou Louis, which empties its waters into the Washita on the right, a little below the rapids, there is a great deal of high land on both sides, which produces pine and other timber, not the growth of inundation lands. At the foot of the rapids, the navigation of the river is impeded by the beds of gravel formed in it. The first rapids lie in latitude 31, 48, 75, 5 north, a little above where there is a high ridge of primitive earth, studded with abundance of fragments of rock or stone, 
and which appear to have been thrown up to the surface in a very irregular manner. The stone is of a friable nature, some of it having the appearance of indurated clay. The outside is brackish from exposure to the air. Within it is a grayish white. It is said that in the hill the strata are regular, and that good grindstones may be here obtained. The last of the rapids, which is formed by a ledge of rocks crossing the bed of the entire river, was passed the evening of the 27th. Above the water it became again like a mill-pond, and about 100 yards wide. The whole of these first shoals, or rapids, embraced an extent of about a mile and a half. The obstruction was not continued, but felt at short intervals in this distance. On the right, about four leagues from the rapids, they passed the Bayou au Boeuf, a little above a rocky hill. High lands and savannas are seen on the right. On sounding the river, they found three fathoms water on the bottom of mud and sand. The banks of the river above the bayou seem to retain very little alluvial soil. The highland earth, which is a sandy loam of a light gray color, with streaks of red sand and clay, is seen on the left bank. The soil not rich, bearing pines, interspersed with red oak, hickory, and dogwood. The river is from sixty to one hundred yards wide here, but decreases as you advance. The next rapid is made by a ledge of rocks traversing the river, and narrowing the water channel to about thirty yards. The width between the high banks cannot be less than one hundred yards, and the banks from thirty to forty feet high. In latitude thirty-two, ten, thirteen, rapids and shoals again occurred, and the channel was very narrow. The sandbars, at every point, extended so far into the bend as to leave little more than the breadth of the boat of water sufficiently deep for her passage, although it spreads over the width of seventy or eighty yards upon the shoal. In the afternoon of the 31st, they passed a little plantation or settlement on the right, and at night arrived at three others adjoining each other. These settlements are on a plain or prairie, the soil of which, we may be assured, is alluvial, from the regular slope which the land has from the river. The bed of the river is now sufficiently deep to free them from the inconvenience of its inundation. Yet in the rear, the waters of the Mississippi approach, and sometimes leave dry but a narrow strip along the bank of the river. It is, however, now more common that the extent of the fields cultivated, from one-fourth to one-half mile, remains dry during the season of inundation. The soil here is very good, but not equal to the Mississippi bottoms. It may be esteemed second-rate. At a small distance to the east are extensive cypress swamps, over which the waters of the inundation always stand to a depth of from fifteen to twenty-five feet. On the west side, after passing over the valley of the river, whose breadth varies from a quarter of a mile to two miles or more, the land assumes a considerable elevation, from one hundred to three hundred feet, and extends all along to the settlements of the Red River. These high lands are reported to be poor and badly watered, being chiefly what is termed a pine barren. There is here a ferry and road of communication between the post of the Washita and the Natchez, and a fork of this road passes to the settlement called the Rapids, on Red River, distance from this place by computation one hundred and fifty miles. 
On this part of the river lies a considerable tract of land granted by the Spanish government to the Marquis of Maison Rouge, a French emigrant who bequeathed it with all his property to Monsieur Bouligny, the son of the late colonel of the Louisiana regiment, and by him sold to Daniel Clark. It is said to extend from the post of the Washita with a breadth of the two leagues, including the river, down to the Bayou Calumet, the computed distance of which along the river is called thirty leagues, but supposed not more than twelve in a direct line. On the 6th of November, in the afternoon, the party arrived at the post of the Washita, in latitude thirty-two, thirty-seven, twenty-five north, where they were politely received by Lieutenant Beaumar, who immediately offered the hospitality of his dwelling, with all the services in his power. From the ferry to this place, the navigation of the river is, at this season, interrupted by many shoals and rapids. The general width is from eighty to one hundred yards. The water is extremely agreeable to drink, and much clearer than that of the Ohio. In this respect, it is very unlike its two neighbors, the Arkansas and Red Rivers, whose waters are loaded with earthly matters of reddish-brown color, giving to them a chocolate-like appearance, and when those waters are low, are not portable, being brackish from the great number of salt springs which flow into them, and probably from the beds of rock salt over which they may pass. The banks of the river presented very little appearance of alluvial land, but furnished an infinitude of beautiful landscapes, heightened by the vivid coloring they derive from the autumnal changes of the leaf. Mr. Dunbar observes that the change of color in the leaves of vegetables, which is probably occasioned by the oxygen of the atmosphere acting on the vegetable matter, deprived of the protecting power of the vital principle, may serve as an excellent guide to the naturalist who directs his attention to a discovery of new objects for the use of the dyer. For he has always remarked that the leaves of those trees whose bark or wood are known to produce a dye are changed in autumn to the same color which is extracted in the dyer's vat from the wood, more especially by the use of mordants as alum, etc., which yields oxygen. Thus, the foliage of the hickory and oak, which produce the quercitron bark, is changed before its fall into a beautiful yellow. Other oaks assume a fawn color, a liver color, or blood color, and are known to yield dyes of the same complexion. In latitude 32.18 north, Dr. Hunter discovered along the riverside a substance nearly resembling mineral coal. Its appearance was that of the carbonated wood described by Kerwin. It does not easily burn, but on being applied to a flame of a candle, it sensibly increased it, and yielded a faint smell, resembling, in a slight degree, that of the gum-lac of common sealing-wax. Soft, friable stone is common, and great quantities of gravel and sand, upon the beaches in this part of the river. A reddish clay appears in the strata, much injurated and blackened by exposure to the light and air. The position called Fort Miro, being the property of a private person, who was formerly civil commandant here, the lieutenant has taken post about four hundred yards lower, has built himself some log houses, and enclosed them with a slight stockade. Upon viewing the country east of the river, it is evidently alluvial. The surface has a gentle slope from the river to the rear of the plantations. The land is of excellent quality, being a rich black loam 
to the depth of a foot, under which there is a friable loam of a brownish liver color. At the post on the Washita, they procured a boat of less draught of water than the one in which they ascended the river thus far. At noon, on the 11th of November, they proceeded on the voyage, and in the evening encamped at the plantation of Baron Bastrop. This small settlement on the Washita, and some of the creeks falling into it, contains not more than five hundred persons of all ages and sexes. It is reported, however, that there is a great quantity of excellent land upon these creeks, and that the settlement is capable of great extension, and may be expected, with an accession of population, to become very flourishing. There are three merchants settled at the post, who supply at very exorbitant prices the inhabitants with their necessaries. These, with the garrison, two small planters, and a tradesman or two, constitute the present village. A great proportion of the inhabitants continue the old practice of hunting during the winter season, and they exchange their peltry for necessaries with the merchants at a low rate. During the summer, these people content themselves with raising corn barely sufficient for bread during the year. In this manner, they always remain extremely poor. Some few who have conquered that habit of indolence, which is always the consequence of the Indian mode of life, and attend to agriculture live more comfortably, and taste a little of the sweets of civilized life. The lands along the river, above the post, are not very inviting, being a thin, poor soil, and covered with pine wood. To the right, the settlements on the Bayou Barthelme and Shard are said to be rich land. On the morning of the 13th, they passed an island with a strong rapid, and arrived at a little settlement below a chain of rocks, which crosses the channel between the island and the mainland called Roque Raw. The Spaniard and his family settled here appear from their indolence to live miserably. The river acquires here a more spacious appearance, being about 150 yards wide. In the afternoon, they passed the Bayou Barthelme on the right, above the last settlements, and about 12 computed leagues from the post. Here commences Baron Bastrop's great grant of land from the Spanish government, being a square of 12 leagues on each side, a little exceeding a million of French acres. The banks of the river continue about 30 feet high, of which 18 feet from the water are a clayey loam of pale ash color, upon which the water has deposited 12 feet of light sandy soil, apparently fertile and of a dark brown color. This description of land is of small breadth, not exceeding half a mile on each side of the river, and may be called the valley of the Washita, beyond which there is high land covered with pine. The soil of the Bayou de Butte continues thin, with a growth of small timber. This creek is named from a number of Indian mounts discovered by the hunters along its course. The margin of the river begins to be covered with such timber as usually grows on inundated land, particularly a species of white oak, vulgarly called the overcup oak. Its timber is remarkably hard, solid, ponderous, and durable, and it produces a large acorn in great abundance, upon which the bear feeds, and which is very fattening to hogs. In latitude 32, 58 north, they passed a long and narrow island. The face of the country begins to change. The banks are low and steep, the river deep and more contracted, from 30 to 50 yards in width. The soil in the neighborhood of the river is a very sandy loam, 
and covered with such vegetables as are found on the inundated lands of the Mississippi. The tract presents the appearance of a new soil, very different from what they passed below. This alluvial tract may be supposed the site of a great lake, drained by a natural channel from the abrasion of the waters, since which period the annual inundations have deposited the superior soil. Eighteen or twenty feet are wanting to render it habitable for man. It appears nevertheless well stocked with beasts of the forests, several of which were seen. Quantities of waterfowl are beginning to make their appearance, which are not very numerous here until the cold rains and frosts compel them to leave a more northern climate. Fish is not so abundant as might be expected, owing, it is said, to the inundation of the Mississippi in the year 1799, which dammed up the Washita some distance above the post, and produced a stagnation and consequent corruption of the waters that destroyed all fish within its influence. End of section 23